What does it take to become an elite 40K player? How do the top competitors overcome bad dice? The Competitive 40K Network presents Art of War Unbroken. Insight into the game plans of the top players on the planet with your hosts, Blake Law and the Art of War Coaches. Hello and welcome to Art of War Unbroken. Champions may lose, but their spirits remain unbroken. I'm your host, Blake Law. This is episode 15 of the podcast. We are very glad to have you join us today. What is this show about? This show is about learning from your losses. We interview elite players who have lost one to two games over the course of an event, and we break down their mistakes and how they plan to learn from them, how they plan to move forward, and how they are going to adapt to the different changes that the game will bring their way. How often have you blamed the game on bad dice? We've all done it. That is exactly what this show aims to debunk. Now, Games Workshop held their first event in over a decade this past weekend, and we would be completely remiss if we didn't talk about it for at least the next couple episodes. That's exactly what we plan to do, and there's all kinds of wacky lists at the top of these events. We're going to provide coverage for these across the next episode. One, two, Art of War is going to do a couple episodes on it. Our guest today did play one of those wacky lists, piloting a Bellacore Demon list over the past weekend, and he finished in the top eight with it. Now, this is part one of the episode, so in this part, we're going to discuss the game, we're going to talk about common mistakes that are made throughout the game, and we're going to just go into the secondaries that he chose and target priority, all that good stuff. In part two, we're going to talk about strategy, adjustments that he plans to make moving forward, any kind of list changes he plans to put into the meta. We're going to talk about how his list applies to your list. We're going to talk about how does it play into shooty list? How does it play into a combat centric list? How does it play into a mix of the two? We're going to ask the hard questions, and hopefully he'll be able to give us some awesome answers on how to play into some different kind of archetypes. And really just that elite player mindset is what we're going after in part two. So make sure to join us. My co-host today was originally the only Brad I knew until I met Brad Nichols this past weekend which now makes my co-host Brad number two, or whoa, El, whoa, Numero, whoa, whoa, El Numero Dos. I would be number one, thank you very much. I'm much older than Mr. Nichols. El Numero Dos, as some may say, Brad. He developed the principle of the Death Onion. He's a nine-time member of Team USA. He won Adepticon 2012, and I think he won some others, like I've said many times. I do not know. The archives are, are, have vanished to time. He has three top eight LVO finishes. He won the Armed Forces GT this year. He was a 2021 ACO champion, Mr. Brad Chester. Hooray! Brad, <sighs> Brad how do you defend a def- how do you how are you going to defend your honor as a Brad? I mean, you ha- you have to become number one again, but there's a lot of Brads kind of moving in here. I am by far the oldest Brad. I feel that I am the oldest Brad in 40k. I might be the oldest Brad, period. So I feel like I've they have to come to me to unseat the Brad throne. If they're going to try to take it. Well, I'm hoping that Brad Nichols comes to, to uh, New Orleans and we can have like a decathlon of Brad's. Like I'll come up with like 10 events and there will I'm only be literally so in for this. This seems like the best idea ever. They're all going to be very, um, very event centric events. And it's going to be the Brad off. Who can be the best Brad? Our guest today. I first met this guy playing in the Clutch City GT back early in the spring. And he very politely beat me into the ground with Death Guard. He plays for the U.S. Army Esports team. He's currently number 18 in the ITC, which should be higher after this past weekend since he finished 7th overall at Games Workshop Orlando. He had a top 8 finish at Maw in the Maw. He's a 14th place finish at Dallas Open. My good friend, Mr. Mars H. That's how you lost him, Oh, no. Uh, H'd, um 
but yeah, I, I really appreciate it. Happy to be here. Um, honored to be here with uh, Elder Brad and yourself. Man, it was great seeing you this weekend, man. Uh, what events do you plan on attending to kind of round out the year? Well, being in the Army and all that, obviously I have training and stuff, but right now what's scheduled is I am going to Siege World this weekend. Um, so that's on the plate. I plan on taking a similar list as I didn't have time for playtesting other than Orlando, and our list submission was due beforehand. So same list, no adjustments yet. Uh, and then uh, it's more than likely going to be the New Orleans as well as the uh, Texas event uh, for the U.S. Open Series. Uh, and nice. then, of course, I'm planning on going to LVO, and there's a possibility of me going to LSO with the Army team if uh, my schedule permits. That's awesome, man. I'm going to be at three of those events at least, so I'll definitely have some time to hang out uh, down the road. But let's jump into Games Workshop Orlando here. Let's talk about the event. So I was there, you were there, 200 other people were there. It was a fantastic time. The event was actually, for those who don't know, it was Games Workshop's, I believe it was their first event since 2010, back when they had like the Art Boy yeah, stuff. It's been, I was saying, it's been a while. Since they've had a proper GT, uh, I can't even remember to tell you the truth. It's I've got my 2002 GT shirt that I wore not that long ago, but it, I don't know what the last one they ran. It has been just uh, four score at least. And it was it was pretty freaking awesome, though, man. I'm telling you, like, they had some pretty good support out there, especially with all the, like, COVID concerns. They kind of did it right. They had all kinds – they had, like, a big uh, Forge World uh, boost set up. They had all kinds of stuff in the back there. They got really sweet swag. They gave out, like, these, like, objective cards where you had all the secondaries and, like, all the missions you were playing were, like, on these nice cards that you could take home and use, like, later as, like, reference. It was, it was really good, man. I, I tell you, I was very, very, very impressed with the Games Workshop event for the first time. Honestly, I didn't know what to expect. So, Mark, what did you think about it? Oh, I thought it was excellent. Honestly, uh, I, I go into anything that is unknown with a healthy bit of skepticism. You know, um, I walked in saying, all right, well, don't know exactly how this is going to be put together, but, you know, might as well go and find out. You know, curiosity is what uh, drove most of my decision to go, actually, uh, considering what I had going on. But, um, yeah, I, I went in. Uh, I recognized a lot of the uh, judges there from other events. They assembled a great team of organizers, uh, judges, and whatnot. Everybody was really wonderful. The way the event was organized, considering they put together a team of people who hadn't necessarily all worked together before. And for the first of its kind, I mean, there it was it was a great event. It was an excellent event. I definitely went back to a lot of the people I know and said, if you can get into one of the other events, absolutely get your ticket because it it, it was excellent. They had uh, they had John Moore there taking care of a lot of the like top table, like logistical electronic stuff. And I could just see like like uh, Rain Man style looking up, seeing all the numbers before his eyes, like his uh, aerospace engineer brain just taking care of it. It was pretty it was pretty great. But yeah, they had a great team there. It's awesome. It was a three day event for those who don't know who's those who don't know about 200 players were there. I think it ended up being 196. And uh, after the first four after the first four games, it split off into a top 16. And then it just became a single elimination for the top 16 until there was only one left. And that one left was Mr. Richard Siegler playing versus John Lennon. Um, the terrain was pretty interesting, actually. Do you want to give us a little bit of a, a rundown of the terrain there, Mark? Yeah, the terrain was interesting in that it was generic uh, GW terrain. However, it was set up in a way on the 
I believe the measurements were 12 by 12 for the large plates, uh, 5 by 12 for the uh, mid-size, and then a little bit smaller for the uh, minimum size ones. And the the plates were uh, see-through, um, and the actual terrain sat on top of those plates. So what this allowed was a couple things. is It gave a clear definition of what was and wasn't obscured at any given time. And what's what was uh, proper uh, as far as, you know, you have a lot of those debates where, oh, does it end where the overhang of the of the terrain is or where a second floor is or is it where the wall stops and you draw a straight line? What exactly constitutes? But with the uh, plate, the square plate below, it gave a clear definition of what was behind for obscuring reference and whatnot and what was and wasn't receiving terrain benefits. And then it had the actual terrain on it that you still had to fit your base through and whatnot, which also was actually advantageous to a list like mine, where there were some points where I could hide behind these uh, pieces of terrain and still move through certain sections because there were big enough holes for a three, three and a half inch base to go through, which well, is they, a lot they of my have no windows also, which is a huge, huge deal on that. Cause you could actually push up into the terrain, into the ruins, even though they had those big, uh, acrylic bay, you know, the big clear bases on them, but you didn't just have the old school problem of when you move into a piece of terrain, you just go, oh, there he is, because there's, you can see through the windows. Now you're in the terrain. So they actually took that away as an argument point. They just went, well, there's no windows here. Just go ahead and move in. I'll be seen. Yeah. And that, that felt really like it, it in ninth edition. One of the things that as, as a player like myself who likes to play a lot of big stuff, I like knights. I like large monsters, as you can probably see from some of my lists. Uh, and whatnot. Uh, it has really felt throughout ninth that I've always been playing against terrain, um, if you will, in a lot of cases, and trying to make whatever I can with terrain work for me. Whereas, like larger infantry uh, lists and whatnot, uh, was felt like it was working more in tandem with terrain than most other things. As infantry beast swarms tend to get most of the benefits from terrain. Yeah. Now, when you were developing your list, did you keep the Orlando terrain, the GW terrain there in mind when you made the list? Or is this a list you were already playing with? This was a list I was already playing with. I saw I saw the terrain and not knowing that those bases were um, the 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 way it's laid out on what they gave to give us a heads up on the terrain. Uh, it didn't, at least to me, uh, indicate that I would have a whole lot of room for movement. And so I knew one of the troubles I would be facing forward is the issue of getting blocked, obviously, by utilizing proper screens and whatnot, which is is something I have already developed my list for, though. So it didn't worry me too much. And with the addition of Bellacor and his ability to fly, uh, it made it less of an issue. Uh, even so, the fact that the crane was the way it was when I got there ended up being... Uh, really helpful to me but i did plan for worse terrain i tell you that i thought that terrain was pretty nice for the just the fact that it was universal and there really was no argument about it right so you could walk up to a table and someone could have had just bumped like everything off the table and it's like well 
let's just push these two people's pieces back together because there's we know there's no windows we know this is exactly where it's at and we know that these are all obscuring and there's it made no argument and honestly i i really liked it i didn't think i would but i i really love the gw terrain setup i'm just a big fan of anything that's universal and what it is you know what i mean it's just such a big deal for it and that that's one of those things that obviously the amount of work it takes to set up uh universal terrain and whatnot for a lot of people it is a lot of effort but putting that effort on the front side and doing that obviously saved a lot of problems on the back side that you're typically going to have naturally when something's not as clear cut let's let's go right into your matchup here so mark you actually played john lennon who eventually went on to the finals we'll, we'll, we'll give him the list first don't sell the man short give him no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm setting man, it up Brad. you're hurting I'm, him you're just you're tossing him aside this is what we let you wander around, and then you just start treating people bad. I, f- I feel so it's, bad for him now. It's not the Brad hour yet, man. I got, I'm a storyteller. I'm setting the story here. It's like, all right, we have Mark here. He's a he's a champion of chaos here, and then we have John Lennon, who is unbeatable right now. You know, so I'm 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 well. I'm what's the story? I'm I'm spinning a tale, if you will. So, Mark, you played John Lennon in the round of eight, who you ended up losing to, which is the game we're going to discuss this episode. And you were playing, like we said, the Bellacore Demons, which we were about to disclose, Brad. And you were playing into John Lennon's Sisters of Battle. So, Mark, why don't you go ahead and just tell us a little bit about your list. Just tell us what's in the list and uh, kind of some thoughts on it. Yeah, um, so the list is uh, two things that have been pretty consistent for me. And uh, if you look back on my games that I've played with Demons over the past couple of years, you'll see that I have three Keepers of Secrets and the Contorted Epitome and most of my Demons lists. I think they're very solid. It's two patrol detachments for them. And then I take 10 Demonettes in each patrol to fill them out so that they're proper Slanesh detachments. The big thing with that is, for those that don't know, Slanesh, uh, the loci, if they're pure Slanesh, each of the characters get a loci of six inches that says any... Slanesh marked demons get the ability to advance and charge, which I think is by and far what makes this list uh, extremely powerful. The three keepers of secrets specifically, they have solid st- stats all around. They're they're great against the lead armies, and they're not bad against uh, larger numbered armies. But they especially sh- shine in the elites meta and when they go against vehicles. They have flat three damage, which is a pretty magical number right now. They have AP3, which usually takes anything to its invul or puts them to a six-up save uh, on all their attacks. The difference is being the Wit Sealer Sword and the Claws. The sword will be strength eight typically, strength um, nine if they're near something that gives them the plus one bonus like the Epitome, and strength six on the Claws. The swords in particular, if they hit something and it doesn't die, that thing gets minus one to its hit rolls for the rest of the game. And they're just fast. They are so fast. They are 14-inch movement with the ability to advance D6 inches and still charge. And then you, of course, always want to exalt them if you get them. Uh, I personally do the exalted trait of, uh, I believe it's Quicksilver Speed, which gives the plus one invul for a four-up invul, making it more durable. A Blessing of the Dark Prince for another one, which is minus one to the wound rolls in shooting. Uh, again, making it more durable. And the last one, I actually choose to roll the random powers. If you look at the powers setup, basically there are two that are kind of okay, but then the other four are amazing. So you only have a combination of 
if you roll, I believe a five and a six is the worst possible options for you. Everything else is really solid to have as an additional setting, and you might get really lucky and roll the two, three, so you get the minus one to wound and also the plus one involved. Well, I love the greed. Slanesh would be proud. Yeah, you got it. It's like when you look at the numbers and all that, like I can't choose anything anyways. I could if I had to. If someone said, you've got to choose the other one, don't roll randomly. I would choose the super speed one where she's an extra two inches to move, extra one to advance, extra one to charge. But honestly, two dice and hoping for a one, two, three, or four on any of them, because they're all very solid, is great. You also get to reroll doubles. The other thing that I mentioned in the Slanesh Patrol detachments are is the contorted epitome. I firmly believe if you are playing demons, you should not leave home with your contorted epitome. It is an entire game changer. It makes people play around it. Uh, one, it can be screened. Uh, it is eight wounds. It's only got toughness five. But the big thing is it has a, a great number of attacks, eight attacks, strength five, AP one, two damage, two attacks, strength six, AP two, three damage, which are fine and well of itself. But the big thing that it does is it has a six inch aura. The six inch aura says that in order for someone to fall back, if it's within six inches of the contorted epitome, you have to roll three D six and uh, get under the leadership. Uh, so as most things have leadership eight or nine, uh, very few things in the game, they have leadership 10. The average on 3d6 is about 10.5. So on average, you should make someone fail to run away. Bellacor and also the psychic powers of Slanesh can help reduce that, giving a minus two leadership to things within range. So when you're sitting there and you're giving something, even with leadership eight or nine, minus two, and you roll 3d6 and say you have to get under, if something's down to leadership six, it's basically roll roll two two one or less on three d six, which is really improbable to happen. And being stuck in with Slanesh monsters that all get to say I always count as charging allows you to make your opponent's fight phase feel like your own fight phase, even with them charging. The final detachment is of course Bellicor, the Lord of Change, and then some Brimstone horrors to fill out the patrol as well as I use a unit of Furies, um, one unit of three uh, Flamers is each, and one unit of six Flamers is each. The Bellicor, um, one, he weirdly uh, does work synergistically with the Contorted Epitome, which I absolutely love. Uh, he has great defenses and great attack stats. Um, the fact that he has every mark on him means he can get any loci as long as he's in range of a loci provider. So he's really great. Um, he's worked wonders. Also keep in mind when you're in a demon's attachment, you can, you have certain stratagems that are all locked to certain marks. Well, he has all the marks. You want to spend CP to heal him with a Nurgle strat? Do it. You want to fight him twice with a corn strat? Do it. That also means he's susceptible to all the psychic powers. Uh, throughout the tournament, I fought Bellicor three times in a turn because he started in combat. I used a psychic power to fight him as a Slanesh demon. Then I charged into something, fought that. And then I spent three CP to use the corn stratagem to fight again. Happened in three of my matches. It was amazing. Um, I, of course, run the Lord of Change. The Lord of Change is uh, one you'll see in a lot of demons lists. It's the Warlord with a Relic and also with an Exalted trait. Uh, the Relic, the Impossible Robe, gives him a three-up invuln, which is re-rollable for free once. However, if you use the free re-roll and you roll a one, he auto-slays, which actually happened in the game with John. Um, and then, uh, 
he just yeah he just dies if that happens but it's still a great relic to give him a three up invul the warlord trait you give him is the reducing coming damage by one to a minimum of one and then the exalted trait is the one that gives him a six up feel no pain that when all the attacks have resolved from the unit whatever feel no pains he's made he also heals that much which is excellent sometimes he actually just gets healed from getting shot or attacked brimstone horrors easy troop choice they have some they have some uh obsec which is solid uh the list does lack in that a little bit but uh they're troops and they're only 50 points so they're great for deploying rod they're only uh three power level i believe um which is also good for reserves your furies also are infantry uh, along with the brimstones great for deploying rod and also only two power level and then that brings me into why i break up my um flamers into a squad of three and a squad of six flamers are infantry uh which a lot of people don't realize and then on top of it because of their power level being what it is you can spend one command point which you'll see in my list i only have three command points to start and i will be able to reserve the Furies, the Flamers, and the Brimstone Horrors all at once. The Squad of Six Flamers helps hedge my bets against certain low toughness uh, Horde armies if I need to. They have a 1CP stratagem where uh, their Flamers do sixes, uh, sixes do Mortal Wounds unmodified. And also, if you take Flickering Flames power on your Lord of Change, you can, of course, uh, augment them to have plus one to wound on their Flamers. And finally, the last like key bits of tech in the list would be one the lord of change i particularly take the flickering flames power uh the mortal wound bomb of infernal gateway uh targets the nearest model and everything within three inches of the nearest model d3 mortal wounds on an eight plus cast d6 mortal wounds all of those on a 12 plus to cast and then finally i actually take treason as inch treason as inch is a psychic power you cast on an eight you take it on the lord of change he has a plus two to cast so you only got to roll a six to get the cast off and then you roll 2d6 against the target's leadership uh, you can't cast it on the warlord is the only big restriction on it but otherwise you cast it on a character uh roll 2d6 if you get above their leadership you basically own that character for the shooting charge fight phase and all that sort of thing and for all intents and purposes it's one of your models so you go against certain lists such as uh you know the out there lists like you know harlequins or other eldar or you go against um uh especially guard that have you know eight leadership on a lot of characters and uh even even death guard um and combine it with the 12 inch bubble of minus one leadership psychic power as well as um combine it with bellicor subtracting one from leadership and you're looking at only needing to roll a seven on the dice to take over a major character such as like you can roll and take over. I've taken over solitaires. I've taken over tank commanders. I've taken over uh, foul blight spawns with their relics. And taking that psychic power because the Lord of Change uh, innately knows three powers from the discipline, as well as the discipline of change, as well as smite, of course. Well, you're only getting to cast two of those powers anyways. And half the time it's smite and the mortal wound uh, bomb from, uh, from Infernal Gateway. So... If you take that power, you're not really losing anything. You're still going to get two solid psychic powers off no matter what when you don't want to use it. But when the time comes where you can consistently use it, it can win you games nearly by itself. So it's it's a solid take. It's just the additional third power he knows from the discipline of change.
Did you have? Did you get any good trees and stuff during the tournament? Uh, no, almost though. the The number one attempt was uh, uh, I actually needed one more. I rolled an eight uh, to take over. Uh, I needed a nine to take over someone's Nightbringer from uh, from Necrons. That makes me a little tear inside that you did not have that happen because that I that would have been epic level story. Yeah, that's like a game changer. Take him over to start uh, smiting people, whatever their power is, falling stars or whatever. Yeah, it's a, it's an amazing power when it goes off. When it goes off, it it turns a game completely uh, sideways. Especially keep in mind, you know, that charge move. If you want to get them away, and you declare a huge charge into something, you know, declare a six inch charge that you're going to make, move them. You pile in three inches to get around their base. Pick up the thing that they're you're fighting with their stuff. Consolidate three inches away from your stuff because you don't have to consolidate towards your stuff at, at this point. It's still um, they're friendly models at this point. You're consolidating towards your opponent's stuff. Give it back to them, and you're like, "Oh man, I just moved him 12 inches away, and he only has an eight inch move. He's still not going to be in charge range." Now that that's pretty awesome, yeah. Um, Brad, why don't you go ahead and tell us about John's list, the list that uh, that Mark played here? Well, let's talk about Johnny's list. The sisters. He's got a bloody rose detachment with a repentious superior, so he can give that whole advance in charge which is never a bad thing and then we've got the more Vol, the part of the volistine part of the list uh battle sister squad because he has to two big units of repentia eight strong two five-man zephyrums an outrider detachment of ebon chalice getting looking for those sixes for the miracle dice we've got celestine a unit of nine sacrosants uh two units of dominions two Seraphim squads with hand flamers, two Retributors with two heavy flamers, two Multimeltas, both with the Cherubs, of course, and a unit, uh, I'm sorry, a unit, two units of Rhinos. With or without the scooter stick. You're just making stuff up now? What's well, the, the, that's, that's, a, that's a Joe Dirt reference. You know, he, he starts rattling off all the fireworks. And he's like, you get your dues or don'ts, your dues or dues, with or without the scooter stick. Step up to the microphone. <laughs> So what were your thoughts going into this matchup? Like, what was your overall strategy? And part two, as a teaser, we will be going into specifics of how to change that, everything that we could have possibly done going forward. That's also known as the witching hour or the Brad hour. So just stay tuned. I, buckle I like the in. Brad hour. The, the Brad witching hour. Yeah, it's just it, we all go blind and Brad just goes goes nuts with knowledge. So that's uh, that's what happens there. So I will say um, the the going into it, I knew that I couldn't just at least my personal opinion is I couldn't just rush in with everything um, that I had to protect my I have very limited infantry and very limited um, stuff for the back lines and whatnot. And I couldn't just let him drop in and, and eat all that stuff. One thing you can do against my army that I recognize very well is if you eat every all of my small stuff and leave me with only my big stuff, is that um, what will happen is now I'm using my big stuff to hold objectives, which is not what I want to be doing. I want to be using it to actually get through your army. Um, so I knew I had to spend... Uh, that's part of the reason I left two of my keepers where they were instead of charging them forward, because I knew that if I let him drop back and just eat all the stuff in the back, then at that point I would have lost, um, even if I was picking up a good amount of stuff in his lines. Um, I also knew that 
I kind of had to force the hand on the Repentia and see if I could survive. Um, I already, already in my head, know what uh, one of the one of the big changes I would make when facing that list. Um, that I definitely, I got caught up in the moment, um, had thought about, and then kind of abandoned in the middle of it, which was um, trying to get Bellacore over. So the way he deployed and whatnot, he had a lot of melee heavy on the for me the near side of the board and um his shooting before we go on mark can you tell us what the mission was on this particular um round oh yeah uh and your secondaries again oh yeah uh so um trying to remember the mission i'm sorry about that it was uh it was the four objective mission um diamond formation on the board um battle lines it's the only uh, four. Yes, it was. I'm saying lines. it's the only four objective yeah. mission. <laughs> yeah. So it was a it was a battle lines. My secondaries were uh, engage on all fronts. Uh, uh data. Uh, retrieve Arcarius data, and then it was assassinate. Um, I chose Rod because uh, for one CP I can deep strike three separate infantry units essentially. Uh, with the power levels I have, I can reserve them and. Um, that makes Rod a lot easier to score for me, as well as with table quarters. You have to understand, I have three monsters that move 14 inches as well as advance, um, and then they have a charge move, uh, and then I have one that flies 12 inches, advances, will still charge uh, as long as I position them properly. So table quarters generally is a, is a generic take for me, uh, So or engage on all fronts, I should say. So those are those are the secondaries that I chose personally. And do you recall what John chose for his secondaries? Uh yeah, it was assassinate. Uh, or sorry, um, he chose a. Uh, he did choose assassinate. Um, he did choose um, overrun. Uh, it was uh, overrun. I'm sorry. Uh, hold. Hold more than your opponent at the end of your turn. And stranglehold. Stranglehold, that's what it is. Sorry about that. Sorry, it's been a long day. Um, and uh, uh, I, I don't quite remember what the third one he chose. I think it was Aboard the Witch. All right, sounds good. And uh, what was y'all's deployment like? Kind of describe uh, where he was in relation to you and kind of what you were wanting to choose as a priority target uh, starting the game off. Yeah, um, so his deployment was, uh, there was a lot of rhinos, um, well, a number of rhinos, and uh, his deployment was pretty uh, spread far, nothing too far in the back. I didn't have any turn one teleports that he had to worry about too much. Um, Two deep striking squads, some Seraphim and some Zephyrim, and um, basically the, uh, the overall was... A couple of rhinos positioned in such a way that if he wanted to get out and move forward and get, you know essentially uh some good distance shots off he could uh with his between his pregame moves his exiting of the rhinos and then his normal move uh and then he he loaded and uh this is probably uh definitely keys into one mistake i made um during the game and that is uh he loaded up uh one side pretty heavily with his melee sisters his repentia um and his um shield sisters i forget the name of them they're they're relatively new sacrosanct yes so those were loaded up on one side of the board 
and uh, on the near side to me. Um, when he deployed in such a way, of course, I asked, what are maximum ranges of X, Y, and Z for punishing certain punishing fires and whatnot? Um, I put the Lord of Change sort of in range of some stuff because I kind of try to invite people to shoot it with all of its um, accoutrements, giving it resilience, um, drawing someone in a little more to ensure that it gets stuff gets close enough that I'm going to get some sort of a charge off, even if the charge isn't um, a super juicy target for the Keepers of Secrets. Getting that extra movement from the charge phase is what I look for the most. Um, so I deployed the probably the Lord of Change in the most exposed area comparatively to everything else. Everything else was hidden to the point where it either you couldn't get line of sight on it reasonably or range on it reasonably um, and just use the terrain to my advantage. What was your plan looking across the board there? Like when you look across at John's army, you say this has to die. This has to die. Uh, turn one, turn two in order for me to achieve victory here. I knew very well that I was not going to kill the key components I wanted to on turn one or two. I was going to, John was going to scream me out properly. I understood that. Um, and so um, the, the fact is, is that in order to, uh, in order to counteract that, I felt that what I needed to focus on was survival in getting through the screens. And the key portion of that was going to be my Lord of Change and my Contorted Epitome. Um, nullifying John's shooting phase was going to be a big factor through the Contorted Epitome. Um, and basically what I had to do there was, um, and something I did was, uh, I went in with Bellacor, teamed up with a contorted epitome, and chose something that I was going to say, all right, this is what I'm trapping with, so I can basically not get shot at with Bellacor, and then hopefully Bellacor can survive a uh, combat phase. If I can get through a turn um, with him active, um, then through the psychic phase, I can do some fighting in the psychic phase, um, and I can start a kind of, sort of kind of um make a make a one round backbreaker that um in the end I planned on Bellacor dying but also taking more than his fair share with him uh in opening up a hole that would allow me to kind of get the girls in to continue to wreak havoc and, and kind of make up for for my passiveness over the past two turns that I had planned to do that over. So when you when you think about the game and how you executed the plan where do you feel like you maybe made a mistake during this game and John capitalized or vice versa? Uh, the Repentia. The Repentia was the the biggest mistake. Throwing Bellacor to the Repentia instead of what I should have done because I was, I was really worried about, um, I guess the thing that I was most nervous about and what affected my decision-making was being passive for two turns with that army can be really rough. Um, I should have taken the passiveness for an extra turn. And the reason I say this is because uh, Bellacor, not a, not the best option against the Repentia. The Lord of Change, however, has the exact stats I want to go against the Repentia. Um, at the Toughness 7, at the 3 plus Invul, at the reduction of damage by 1, which is probably the biggest thing in my opinion with this, because they have plenty of attacks. Stuff's going to get through. But with the reduction of damage by 1 and the 6-up Feel No Pain allowing me to heal... Um, I think sitting on the Repentia for a turn or two 
and getting my stuff in position to start killing the Repentia with whips and psychic phase outside of combat, even though they eventually would have picked up the Lord of Change, I think the Lord of Change would have lasted. And I think with him lasting, what I should have done or planning for him to last was actually cross them because they started on opposite sides of the board. And looking at it, I would have run the Lord of Change um, closer to me and run Bellicor the opposite side of me, held back for an extra turn, and taking that one more turn of passivity, eating the eating the loss of uh, one of the girls uh, in the shooting phase, and then tried to wreak havoc from there. But but certainly um, going into that spot with Bellicor, he was not the optimal option for that. I should have used Lord of Change to tie up those melee options and to um, sort of hold back that tide while I try and cleaned up the shooting phase a little bit and brought the game into a. Um, more attrition fighting phase style of uh, game, hopefully. But that that was that that's something that I I would correct if I had to face it again. So to summarize, would you say you have to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, know when to run? I'm on my way to be you right now. <laughs> I I wouldn't summarize it that way, but I think that is absolutely the the gist of of what I need to do. I I definitely got um I I. I was happy that I was able to hold back for a turn and be smart about that, but I didn't hold back enough. And I, I think one thing that people will do is they see something and they look at something as very binary. They go, they go, I'm either holding back or I'm not holding back. And if I did one and it failed, then obviously the answer should have been to do the other. But that that that's the thing, right? Is like everything falls on a spectrum. I was not completely passive that that time that I was playing. Uh, nor was I completely aggressive. I was sort of a mix. And even though normally I play aggressively, I think weirdly going outside my comfort zone and going into passiveness um, for a for a longer period of time than I'm used to, um, I think I would actually lean into it a little more. I think I, I think I just didn't, I got a little antsy. I was out of my comfort zone on being a little more passive and I broke, uh, I, 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 you know, I, I didn't hold them long enough. Uh, and instead, I decided to go all in. Now, as far as just things that you could think of for the future on this, if you're playing that battle lines against that sister, was there any merit to just taking battle lines, the, the secondary mission, uh, your usual secondaries, uh, don't take anything to the last, and basically pushing up to those middle objectives and basically saying, you have to come out and deal with me, or I'm going to take 15 on this primary, and I'm going to max out the other secondary? I think if I'm exposed to um, John's full suite of shooting and full suite of melee without any sort of nuance to interrupting it, I think uh, as we saw on stream, like he picked up, he picked up um, Bellacor in the fight phase, and he picked up two keepers of secrets in the shooting phase. Uh, More of a not just everything stand at the line, but basically putting putting just a a, you know a portion, basically accepting the fact that. This is an uphill battle for you right now. And just going into it and saying, all right, I've got these objectives. Send something out to trade for me. And then just kind of pushing up from there. Because otherwise you do stand in that that, that problem of he's got the, the ability just to do what he wants with the no pressure. He's, he's basically not going to make a ton of mistakes going in there. So you got to basically, was that a time maybe you could have just taken that risk of, you know, a layered response uh, pushing up to the middle? continually taking those objectives because we only have four of them on that mission. So, you know, kind of limiting his primary 
and pushing it so that you have more of a chance to basically to take that from it. Yeah, I mean, that's that's semi what I ended up doing in a way because Bellacor went to an objective and then two keepers of secret or a keeper of secrets along with um the Lord of Change went to another objective and then the contorted epitome accompanied Bellacor to the objective. And I still had two keeper of secrets held back that still had the movement to get to those. Um and uh yeah, I mean the, I think there's there obviously uh absolutely merit i think i i mistimed my response though i think there's there's absolutely merit to doing that and i mistimed my response and i miss uh assessed which um i i didn't i didn't create efficiency in what i sent to deal with what in that layered response um so there there is merit to that plan um and and i unfortunately only partially executed a similar plan um and i i think again doing it again that is something i would look at a lot more um as far as what i would send to be my first my first um sort of deal with me uh units up front and what would be my secondary response possibly instead of sending bellacore at all um sending a keeper of secrets um, in his place and then the Lord of change and maybe trading their spots and making the Lord of change more center center uh, center board for deployment so that he can choose which area to go to based on how John deploys. Yeah, I was just thinking that like it's it is it's not a great matchup for you. So one of those things I was thinking is just like basically forcing his hand, making it so he has to do something to you uh, going from there. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that is absolutely a, a course of action I would take in in if I ever get the chance to fight that matchup again. What happened once? How did this all play out? So Bellacor hits the um, the Repentia and he crumbles to him in one round, and then kind of he keeps that flank on that side. How did you respond to that? Yeah. So um, uh, first round, I advanced up. I charged the Rhino with the Contorted Epitome along with Bellacor. Um, I knew. Celestine could heroic. Um, my plan was to shut her down with the gem, uh, which I was successful with. Um, then uh, that allows uh, going into his turn. And then I, I chose Bellacor to use his sweep attacks against the Rhino. I don't want to pick up the Rhino because there's stuff inside that'll take the objective from me, as well as there are, um, they're, getting rid of that Rhino means I either had to pile in to melee units and give free melee swings um in order to trap them in melee or um it means i get out of combat and i just don't get to trap something in combat so i did the sweep attacks um uh not re-rolling so that i wouldn't kill the rhino um trapped it in combat he responded with the kitchen sink as he said uh he threw uh two squads of repentia um the um the sacrosaints and the um and celestine and they got in there and he survived uh one of the repentia with all the buffs uh he swept attacked the other uh squad they on on death fought and uh bellacor went down after that collapsed the other unfortunate thing that happened was um i certainly was not expecting the lord of change to go down the lord of change typically takes a lot more punishment um you know we we uh mentioned that a little bit how he 
he he just didn't show up for me uh that day um it, he he had a rough going of it it's all good it happens and um you know normally he can take a few turns to bring down some people have expended you know most of their army trying to take down that lord of change and haven't been successful so the plan was to have him keep up over there uh we were actually down to the last thing that could damage him with one wound left on him and uh I did my free reroll he, he on the uh, the uh, impossible robe, and I rerolled it into a one, which auto slayed him. So that was a an unfortunate thing that happened over there as well. Um, so, uh, but that happens, and and the thing we got to think about is yeah, dice rolls are dice rolls, but I put myself in the position to be relying on those dice rolls, and because I put myself in that position, um, that's that's on me. Um, you part of your job as as a player, and, you know, we say. You know, job it's a hobby but part of what you're trying to do as a player is to go put myself in the situation where if dice go as sideways as possible i'm still okay and i was not successful in doing that and that's definitely something that i i need to learn to get better at and something that uh i'm definitely seeking to improve on uh, on looking back on this game i feel like you had really good insight on that game and i i think that that was perfect exactly what this uh you know show is all about you know exactly you you put yourself in positions that where dice rolls don't affect you as much and i think you kind of had some good thoughts on how you could change that so i really appreciate your uh, your insight on the game man yeah no problem it was an excellent game i love i, I you know i I've, I've talked with some people about this and i think at the moment you it's okay to say my dice were bad right people can say that the factually when you look at numbers dice can be bad dice can be hot that's okay um it's when you start saying and you start replacing the words um the why did i lose that game with what you know why did these dice lose me this game and you start sitting there and that's all you blame if that's all you can come out with then um you're 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 effectively stuck at where you're at you are never going yep. to 100 percent. it's the whole point of the podcast i love it the funny thing is is the the art of rule the eh, art of rule art of war house rule is you get to complain about your dice for 24 hours and after that you have to figure out what happened and how you lost and just move <laughs> on from there that's i just, love that i love <clears throat> that rule yeah because you can go you get to go to the you know you get to go to the restaurant the bar or whatever you get to have the great stories about you know 12 inch charges and failing everything. And then you have the next, you know, by after the next day, however, you have to say, well, why the hell was I in range for the charge? Why was I having to take all those saves? You know, that's when you really learn from your mistakes. Mark, when you sit down and think about games, like you're, you're leaving an event, you're thinking about the games, like where, where things maybe went wrong, like you just did. What's your process for kind of uh, going through those games and figuring out, you know, left, left and right and up and down and all that. Um, Generally, if I have a if I it, I I'm lucky enough in this game that it was recorded, so I can go and I've, I've probably watched that recording a couple times now. Um, and if I have a tool that gives me you know exact play by plays by exactly what was happening, I'll kind of go through um, you know sort of a play by play and whatnot. Where would I go from here? Where would I go from here? Okay, I'm um, you know and. Uh, I try and break it down piece by piece. Um, if I don't have that, because it's a lot to memorize, and you know, if you're at a big tournament, you're doing three games in a day, and you're not going to remember everything. I tend to look at the pivotal points, and I say, what what made me feel like I was on the back foot? What made me feel like I was on the front foot? And um, it, what did I do to accomplish that? And what did I? What can I do to prevent that? Um, and 
essentially what I do is, is I try and look at whatever moment I can, especially the ones uh, I make a mistake on. I think looking at if it's, it don't get me wrong. I have some plays that I did that I will share with friends for a while because I'm really proud of them. And, but you know, reveling that is really good. Makes you feel good and uh, definitely recommend it for a little bit. But when it comes to self-criticism and all that sort of thing, um, it's, you don't really have to focus on the, on the success stuff as much because you did that for a reason. That's apparently a habit you already have or something you've already thought about. Um, the key is to focus in on, um, tearing apart what, what you did wrong and really, really focusing on it. One of the things I, uh, talk to people about is like, um, all right, uh, if you, truly believe this thing. If you believe the best way to go is, you know, do this uh, line of movement or to do this or to do that, I want you to argue against it. I want you to pretend you're in a debate right now with somebody and that person is arguing the point you're trying to make right now where, no, that was the best play possible and all that sort of thing. And I want you to come up with every single reason possible, like you're trying to prove them wrong. And argue with yourself that way, because if it if it really is the best line and it really is that good and you really, really attack it, well, then it'll stand up. But if you sit there and you start attacking it like you're pretending you're trying to tear yourself down and whatnot um, and you start to see you start to see yourself making really good points as to why that might not have been the best line, then maybe it wasn't the best line and maybe you need to rebuild your thought process. Um, And that's it's a little weird, I know, to argue with yourself, but it's it's a. It's a process I go through to trying and make sure that I'm being honest with myself. I love that, though, because when I work with people all the time, myself, friends, clients, I often look at the list and I I do a, a basically an exercise where I go defend every unit in your army. And you should be able to say this unit does this, you should it does this. And this is why I have them in there. Anytime that you're slow to why a unit's in there, like what is his exact role? as soon as you can't defend that, that's when you have to go, well, maybe it shouldn't be in here. Mark, I think that you're uh, talking to yourself because you're corrupted by chaos. So just a, just a thought here, but... Um, hey, man, Zinch, change your ways, you know? Gotta gotta freaking think all the past, all the future, you know? Got like that uh, <laughs> Zach Galifianakis and, and the hangover numbers <laughs> popping up and stuff, you know? Gotta sort it out somehow. <laughs> perfect, perfect. Well, Mark, thanks for coming on. Uh, I'm excited. Everyone, make sure to listen to part two. We're going to talk about list changes he's going to make. We're going to talk about additional strategy. He gave you a lot, lot in part one. This is a little teaser for what's to come in part two. Um, we usually do a Q&A at this part from the War Room members. The War Room is our private Facebook group that you can uh, join by going to theartofwar40k.com and signing up. We're not doing one this week. I'm sorry, Mark. I was traveling home from Orlando, and I uh, did not post the Q&A thread. So I apologize to everyone. I let everyone down. So... If you want to post questions for Mark for the next episode, I will happily fill them at the end of episode 16. So we will put that up, post questions to Mark in episode 16, and we will fill all of those then. Make sure to check out all the Art of War's other stuff going on. We got two other podcasts. We have the Art of War Vanilla with Tim Penny and John Lennon. We have the Art of War Down Under with Adam Camilleri. We are the Art of War Pistachio, the flavor you didn't know you liked until you tried it. Check out all the coaching services. You can hire Brad. He will do literally anything you ask if you hire him and i mean literally anything 
We have it's, John it's Lennon. It's real weird. Art of War After Dowers, yeah. You have Nick Natavati. You have all the great people you can go over to theartofwar40k.com and hire. Um, check out the website. Check us out. Make sure it join us for part two. Thanks for listening. Like what you just listened to? Check out Art of War and the Art of War Down Under podcast on the competitive 40K network. Theartofwar40k.com. 